0: You are listening to the next Best Picture podcast, and this is Brendan Hodges' interview with the director for *20 Days of War*.
1: Mr. Chernov. Someone once told me, wars don't start with explosions; they start with silence.
0: Лично <laughs> видим The city of Mariupol is blocked from all
1: sides. Russians have entered the city. The war has begun, and we have to tell its story.
0: First of all, I just wanted to say congratulations on the movie. I've been able to see it a few times now, and it's extremely arresting and powerful in ways that I don't think anybody could prepare for no matter what they've heard about this particular movie. My first question for you is, you know, when you were there capturing this footage, at what point did you decide I think I might be able to turn this into a longer feature as opposed to just sending it to different news organizations or something like that.
1: So, um I am first of all a news cameraman, so my Primary goal always is to film these news dispatches that can be used by AP and by AP's clients. However, I think somewhere around um, when the city was uh, completely surrounded, it was around 4th of, of March, and uh, I was kind of feeling that, and I realized that there is actually no one. Uh, else except us that is uh, recording and sending uh, stories at that point uh, i realized that every single moment i record will be important i did not know that it's going to make into the film or or it's going to go it's going to become something else but i understood at that point that every single moment has to be recorded that was it was very challenging because I was out of batteries I was out of cards uh, at at certain moment but so I, I just tried to keep the balance but uh, the idea of the film came when we left Mariupol so we driving through these 15 Russian checkpoints and we are extremely nervous because we know that Russians are looking for us and uh, if we get caught, we'll be in trouble. And the example of how this could unfold is uh, what happened to Mantas Kudaravich, um, later, that is a Lithuanian filmmaker who tried to escape from Mariupol after we did. And he got uh, shot, um, just executed on the, on the checkpoint. So that gives us insight of what would happen to us. I was really nervous because I really wanted to carry out this. Thirty hours of footage. It was important to 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 bring out the originals, and when we did, uh, I knew that I have to do something with them because one minute, two minute news pieces just not did not give enough context, context and uh, uh, feeling how it, how it really was. Um, and the drama theater bombing happened a day after we left, so. Uh, you know, I also felt terrible for not filming that, and I wanted to do more. So it kind of naturally came into uh, idea to do to do a film. But it wasn't it wouldn't be possible if at some point, during the siege, I decided to record everything, just to stop doing news and just keep recording.
0: It's so interesting that you say the main difficulties you're citing here, you celebr, that your batteries, ran out and you were out of cards because when you're watching this you're you know often in the middle of war zones you're dodging gunfire uh you hear the roar of planes overhead at all times there's multiple tanks at one point the tank starts raising you know the the gun on it the the big cannon towards where you're filming and so what was that process like because something that i've read for a lot of the acclaim around the movie is you have a really uncanny knack for knowing what to capture in the moment for knowing where to put your camera what the audience would want to see how do you basically block shots how do you compose shots how do you know what to film and what not to film as you know, a journalist as now a documentarian, when your life could be literally on the line as it was in so much of this footage.
1: To be fair, to be fair, I have to say that a lot of moments, and I truly regret that, and I truly still dream about those moments in my nightmares, we're not actually captured. Uh, there were several moments which which I just simply missed because I was afraid, because I was dodging from these bombs that you know we just mentioned, or uh, I didn't have time to push the button, or I didn't have a battery. So I mentioned I mentioned batteries and cards because these are production problems, obviously. Sure. Yeah, yeah, and I could also say there was no food. We ate only once a day. <laughs> there was no no water we had to melt snow to get actual water and but all, all that all that is something that everyone in the city experienced uh, so i can't really complain about that uh, we but um i think so, so i've been doing this for 9 years already The conflict journalism in general started for me uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. They they invaded Crimea, and then they invaded um, Donbass. And conflict journalism for me started there. I automatically, as many as many Ukrainian journalists, I became war journalist. I started to work for AP, and just happened naturally. Um, And I studied, and I studied from there. uh, I went to different. Different wars I've been in Iraq and I've been in Afghanistan and uh, Syria, and Libya, and Nagorno-Karabakh. Every single war, but I I was always coming back to Ukraine. It was like a, a cycle for me, an important cycle. I would always come back and I would keep filming. So uh, these nine years I was studying of how to tell stories, how to how to frame, how to how to block. Actually, thank you for. For, for this term yeah i'm not sure you can you can think of blocking or 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 building a scene when you, when you are filming news or when you are in a life threatening situation but the fact that i'm also an editor that i edit everything i film it helps me to think of editing while i'm shooting so i start shooting and the scene unfolds and i already edit in my head oh well, at least i start editing in my head so the only big difficulty would be uh to keep filming while you're trying to survive that is the biggest challenge so yeah to find the right balance between uh, survival and and necessity to 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 capture something that is something I constantly challenge myself about, and I constantly get getting angry with myself about that I, I am afraid too much, that I have to film more and better.
0: No, but I mean, the footage you have gotten here and assembled is just unbelievable.
1: It is a result of an internal struggle. Uh, again, just, to, just yeah. to say, what you see is being filmed. is While you film, you struggle. You struggle whether you run away or you keep filming whether you dodge or you just like go forward or or backwards so um, uh, yeah yeah and then there is a there is always a security protocols that you can follow so I think it comes down to to a habit all these nine years they, they I, I have developed a certain method right. to that
0: that makes sense you know? and I, I noticed that at one point in particular, you mentioned, oh, maybe, you know, don't necessarily say blocking I'm, just because it was often so run and gun, but there's one moment where you are in the hospital and one of the physicians is like, follow me downstairs, follow me. And I noticed that you stayed at the, stop, the top of the stairwell to allow him to walk down into the basement. And then you hard cut into this kind of ghastly, a very upsetting sight of all the bodies down there. And I'm like, oh, he let the doctor walk down the stairs so he could do the hard cuts. There was kind of a formal decision to, to do that, and I, I wondered how much of what you you were filming is edited, kind of in your head as you're filming, or edited in camera like that. That was the most obvious moment of it, but there's so many other moments that flow really smoothly from some of the extraordinary testimony and interviews that you've gotten and stuff like that, where to me, it's mind boggling how you have this 30 hours of footage. And yet so much of this seems to tell one story and flow so well. So I assumed while shooting it, you must have had some idea of how some of it would come together.
1: Actually, you could see you could see how this idea forms in my head slowly. The first several days, there are less connections and there is more standard use kind of shots. But as as the story progresses, as I realize more and more that there might be a necessity to record everything, and there might be a necessity to tell a bigger story. You can see me recording more. And therefore the scenes are built more extensively, and there is more coverage um and the overall better editing flow coming out of that again this is this is something that comes from experience and uh, comes from editing in your head while you're shooting and just trying to predict a certain certain situations in advance a lot of what you see it's it's a process of a discovery so what I tried what we tried to do with Michael Meissner, who is the editor from the frontline is to to bring the audience maximum to the experience i had throughout throughout these 20 days so as it's unfolding in front of me we wanted to have a similar experience we wanted to to bring the audience in, in a similar experience when i don't know what's downstairs there on that stairwell And uh, as I'm also a little bit emotionally traumatized and afraid to go there with what I might see there, I I, I give it a pause, a moment to to think about. And editing afterwards helps that as well. And also that scene specifically, if we talk about it, there is a a specific music cue that uh, uh, Jordan Dykstra made for these scenes, we it's a music that's associated with grief. So the audience, even before seeing what, what is there, downstairs, the audience already kind of feels what's coming. Because that is the similar, uh, similar music that we already heard when we saw parents losing and grieving over their dead children so yeah that 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 all that all comes uh, together in in editing room yeah
0: that that makes sense and especially with the music as this connective device to make all the footage feel seamless it, it very much does have that sense of collective grieving one thing i want to ask about that you just briefly touched on is how you at some point made the decision not to make this feel like A thriller or feel like in some way, um, like an objective analysis of this footage, you put yourself very much inside of your own documentary. And for me, that made it a more personal and emotionally overwhelming experience. You're telling us almost your stream of consciousness, even while you're interviewing subjects, you're like, Oh, should I have shut the camera off? Should I keep it running? Where does my The humanity of myself and the journalist part of myself, beginner end. And I thought that was very powerful, how you chose to make it more about your subjective experience in that place and time that's so dangerous and fraught. At what point did you decide that has to be your approach? Because we've seen many conflict documentaries before, but very often they do try to make it more of a thriller or they do try to make it more objective. And you took the total opposite path here and to, I think, very successful effect.
1: Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Thanks. It's, it's a very good question because <laughs> we actually search for, search for the right tone. The, it was one of the most difficult parts of, of, of making a film is the search for the right tone. How, how would you do it with what how can you tell this story and actually after we left mariupol and uh, when the siege was over i've recorded hours and hours and hours of interviews with the survivors Uh, we followed up with a lot of people with, with parents with doctors police so the idea was to construct a narrative with those voices but at some point we felt that again uh, we needed to bring the audience inside those 20 days, and not to not to let them go until they they will go with with us through these days. And it's important for for the audience not to know how is this is over because we didn't know, and the people who who suffered, the people who lost their homes and their relatives, they also didn't know how this is going to end for them. So finding a right tone was, was difficult. And the choice of a narrative device, me narrating a film, was not the first choice. But it eventually came as a solution because, partially because I am from eastern Ukraine. I am Ukrainian. This is a story of a community which I am deeply attached to. So it's also our story. Evgeny, who is a photographer, he's from Berdyansk, which is like, like right next to Mariupol, and his city is occupied now. And I am from Kharkiv, which is a very similar industrial city uh, next to Russia. So all this comes to uh, that our story is part of the story of the community. However, again, was important for me not to be focused too much on a journalistic perspective, mm-hmm. uh, not to make this film about me. So, using a journalistic approach, like a journalistic perspective, to connect all the stories into an arc, a story arc, but at the same time, not to do this story about journalists because it is not a story about journalists. I, I, I. I Deliberately tried to avoid telling more details about the team. I deliberately tried to avoid showing. There was a lot of footage of us uh, in the city, like how we work, you know, how we eat and stuff. All that was cut out and it was not important. What was important is those moments when the camera drops down. <laughs> and I totally did not remember those moments. This is a discovery that was made by Michelle Meissner, the editor of the film. She said, Mr. Love, you have these moments when you just drop the camera, you keep talking to people or you just react on something. And I said, I have no clue what you're talking about. I have that, don't remember those moments at all. I just told myself not to turn off the camera. That's it. Right. And apparently those moments worked because uh, when you drop the camera, you, uh, the scene keeps unfolding. And that's where that's where you become when you stop being journalist and you just become a part of a scene. And I think that that partially also worked as the set set up for the right tone of the film.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I love that phrase, drop the camera, because it's literal, but it's also kind of a metaphor in, in this case, too. And it's very fascinating. You bring that particular stuff up because. In so many of those moments, it's like your humanity just took over, and you you were there, and you were reacting as a human being as well as a journalist. And so I wanted to ask you I was struck by how willing people were to be interviewed, how willing people were to give you know their their own perspective. And there's one or two moments where you're filming and someone actually asks you in the same shot, oh can you interview me? Can I speak? Um, My question was, I know a lot of this probably is just people were so heartbroken and traumatized. They wanted to get that truth out there to the world. But what did you do, if anything, to, uh, to get that level of trust between you and the people you're interviewing? Because a lot of these people, we see they don't know what's happening, right? They have no news infrastructure to communicate with them. You know, they don't know up from down. Their world is is crashing down. And yet you found a way to get them to speak with you. So what were you doing behind the the, the camera or between the scenes that made them trust you?
1: Um, Actually, those people who said to pardon my language to fuck off, uh, they uh, (laughs) they did the film. I respect their opinion and they're not not in a Film. There are people who swear in on the camera, but they do it deliberately, just yeah. to express their opinion. And they are in the film. But those people who just said, "Hey, please don't film me," they they're not they're not there. And they were quite a few of them, actually. But and I respect that. But I think the the Mariupol itself is is a very interesting. I never thought about it at that point, but I think it's an amazing case study of, of how journalism is actually more than just uh, uh, a necessity to pass information from point A to point B, from an, an event to viewers somewhere across the world, which is still important, but also it's the way to hold our society together. So the phenomena of of uh, of yupal uh, was that the siege was uh, also not only a physical siege, but it was an informational siege. And big part of a of a, of a film is about trying to break through the information siege. But what happens to the society when they they end up in this information siege and they don't know what's happening to them? The society collapses, and this actually shows us how dependent we are on journalism, on dependent, we are on news, on, on press, what happens to us when we don't have them around, it was more of a, it was more of a desperation of people, more of a, more of a wish to, to, to go back to some kind of normality, to know more, uh, that, that made the success so, make this, this connection with people so, so strong, because I, we were getting hundreds of messages through the whenever we had access to social networks like an instagram or uh, or Facebook. we were getting hundreds of messages by relatives trying to find their loved ones, either saying, "Please, can you go and film and, and do something about my relative there, there and there, or just saying, "I saw my relative in your footage. Where is that? What's the address? And How was, you know, how how is my relative? How is my loved one? And later on, we know that these boys that lost their, uh, one of the boys lost their leg, his leg. One of the football players lost his leg. One uh, recovered. So there are three football players in the film. One dies, one loses his leg. And um, these are just 16-year-old boys. We know that their families found them in a hospital because they saw it in the news and they were able to get them out in time because of that and uh, save their, their basically to save their lives. So that is an example of how how this works and why people actually want it. But uh, yeah, it's just um, uh, it's just desperation. I, people, and you can see me expressing in the film similar similar thoughts. It's People are getting killed in their houses, getting destroyed. And Jesus just didn't know why. This right. question, why, is a central question of the film. It's asked by mom of Kirill, Marina Yatsko, When she loses, when she understands that her child is dead, she asks this question, why? So that is a central question of the film. And this is a central question of what people were asking us, why this wouldn't stop. Um, that's why they wanted to talk to us.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I am I, running out of time, so I have only one more question for you here.
1: I think uh, we can extend one more question if you need. So, we could...
0: all right, perfect. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. You you brought up that information siege. Yeah. I was wondering at what point, and I I assume that you probably figured this was going to happen given uh, Russia's history. But when you saw how your footage was being used in Western media versus how it was presented as lies and, you know, manipulated footage or it didn't reflect the reality. Was that demoralizing? Did you expect it? Because I, I thought it was fascinating how strongly that aspect of what occurred with your footage was basically woven into what you could call the end of the documentary, that the third act or whatever, um, because that, that affected me very much just as a viewer, because I was so connected to you as a narrator by that point. All I wanted was your footage to be seen as for what it really was.
1: As a journalist, I was kind of expecting that because right. uh, technically the conflict journalism for me started in 2014, as I said. And the first thing I've ever filmed for a P was a crash of MH17 Boeing, which was shot down by Russia. So the next the half an hour after it gets shot down, I go there And I film it and I send it. And I was one of the first Western journalists who sent the footage out. And I'm seeing these horrible scenes. Hundreds of people dead, and children lying in the fields um, and uh, burning bones and plastic and metal and remains of the plane. And I'm so shocked. And I keep filming this and I send it. And I think, oh, my God, this is going to stop the war for sure or this is going to open our eyes of everyone. But the next day, I see this footage being used by Russia as much as it being used by Ukrainian channels and Western channels. The same thing happened just with a different narrative, with a different interpretation. Same thing happens to uh, footage of maternity hospital bombing. The phenomena is that the usage of this footage in the Russian media was, was as big as the usage of, In the Western media and the Ukrainian media, it's just interpretation was, was completely opposite to the truth. So I expected that to happen. It still made me confused, but it also made me think about that we really need to follow up with these stories. That's what we usually do, and that's what kind of drives the story forward. We need to follow up. We need to find these women. And that moves you forward. But we really thought a lot about how to make this part of the film narrative as well. How would you transfer this? How would you show the audience how the footage is being misinterpreted? So this one was one of the challenges while, while making the film of, uh, of just making this part of a story, making this uh, the transformation of the meaning uh, into, uh, into a film. How to how to put it into a film?
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. And I'm getting the wrap here, but I just wanted to say, I don't usually end interviews this way, but I wanted to offer just a sincere thank you for capturing the footage, and just to briefly say, I have uh, friends of mine whose families are from Eastern Europe, and I remember when all this was going down, we were following the news very closely. And it turns out that a lot of the first footage that I was seeing from that time was, was your footage. (laughs) Yeah. So I I just wanted to say, you know, on a a personal note to end by saying thank you for what, what you've done and, and the work that you you've contributed from a journalistic. And I would even say an artistic point of view, the documentary is extraordinary. So thank you, sir. Um, I'm sure it's going to go the rest of the year getting many accolades.
1: Well, I think documentaries are, are good for next generation to form their understanding. Like, I form my understanding of history by watching documentaries and reading books. I don't go back to news footage or, or, or headlines of newspapers, right? We watch documentaries. So, right. it also was an important perspective, like a historical perspective.
0: Yeah, of course. Well, thank you so much again. And have a good rest of your week, sir. Thanks. Bye. Yeah. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Brendan Hodges' interview with the director for 20 Days in Mariupol Mstilov Chernov here on the Next Best Picture Podcast 20 Days in Mariupol will be playing in Los Angeles on July 21st, exclusively at Lamel Monica You have been listening to the Next Best Picture Podcast, we are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts